Well, Jesus Christ, that is true that you have overcome. You have overcome the grave. You have overcome death. You have overcome sin. You have overcome sorrow. You have overcome temptation. You have overcome fear. You have overcome unbelief. You have overcome skepticism. You have overcome worry. You have overcome every trial and temptation that we have faced, are facing, and will be facing. You have overcome every sadness and discouragement and disappointment you have overcome. And we bless you this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, and we recognize your authority in this place. Father, I pray right now as we humble ourselves under your word, I pray we would not come to it in pride. I pray that, Lord, we would cast our anxiety on you right now. Whatever happens this week, whatever we've been tempted with, whatever discouragement we're going through, whatever fears, whatever sin we're struggling with, we cast that upon you because you care for us and you overcame to carry that for us. It is not ours to carry, it is yours. And so God, I pray right now in this moment, just a place of release, a place of release of all of that care, all of that sorrow upon the one who is near to the brokenhearted and to the crushed in spirit. And say to us what you want to say by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill my mouth right now. Remove distraction from this place. Guard my mouth from error and say what you want to say in the awesome and majestic name of Jesus Christ. Church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, church, it is wonderful to be back here with you. And today marks a very special day. I mean, every Sunday is very, very special around here. But every time we get to kick off a new sermon series, it takes it up a notch. And so we are going to be launching into a new sermon series on the book of Titus for the next eight weeks leading up to and including July 1st. And we're going to be looking at God's heart for his church. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse Verse 1, if you do not have a copy of God's word in front of you, our ushers are coming forward right now, just put up your hand. We want to put a Bible in front of you so you can follow along here in the service. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that as a free gift so you can continue to study God's word in your personal worship time at home. And if you're new here, one thing you're going to notice about how we go through God's word and preach God's word, we go verse by verse, line by line. Usually we do entire books. Sometimes we'll do a topical series like we just finished on God's heart for the home. But we're going to be going verse by verse over the next eight weeks through this entire book. Now, why are we doing this? Well, it's important we remember the theme that we launched at the beginning of this ministry year back in September of 2018. And it was this, foundations, getting back to the heart. So this whole year has been focused on getting back to the heart. You say, what does that mean? Well, series one in the Gospel of John that we did the first four chapters in, that was getting back to the heart of the Gospel. All right, and Lord willing, we will pick that up again in the fall, starting at chapter five. Then we moved on to the series we just finished, which is God's heart for the home. 
And we looked at various texts in the Old and New Testament about what is God's desire for the home, the family, and what is the church's role in helping to see the family built up in what God promises to bless and to give his support to. That was a wonderful series. And now we're moving into, as you can see on the screen, God's heart for his church through the book of Titus. And you say, well, why Titus? There's 66 books in the Bible. Why are we focusing on this short little three-chapter book? Well, here's why. we got to look at why it was written. Titus was written as God's, literally God's blueprint for planting and building healthy churches that survive and thrive for his glory. Man, does our nation ever need that in our day, amen? Planting and building churches, healthy churches that survive and thrive for his glory. And so over the next eight weeks, we are going to see God's portrait of a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like in God's eyes? And so we're going to be addressing some of these following topics. Uh, spiritual leadership of the church. When we look at elders next week, we're going to be kicking into that. Spiritual leadership. We're going to be looking at how the church is supposed to confront error. Doctrinal error. Moral error. We're going to be looking at proper Christian living. What does it look like? What does a life of godliness look like individually and then in the home, but also corporately in the church? And all of, underlining all of this is we're going to look at how the gospel is the source of all genuine Christian living. Because here's the truth. We can't grow in godliness without the gospel every day. We need to preach it to ourselves literally every day, and we'll see it from the outflow of that to others as well. And we are praying as elders. I've been so excited. I've had this series circled on the preaching calendar for the last eight months, and we've been praying as elders for God to do a deep, supernatural work in this church. It's a perfect time to go through this through this book, as here we are, just celebrated our second anniversary, and the church that we're about to look at in Crete, that this is written to, um, is about two years old, two, three years old at this time. It's perfect timing, perfect timing. And why is it important that we do this series right now? We could have done a series on anything right now. There's lots of needs in our day, right? God's word has a lot of things to say. Why this series right now? Well, because, just look around us, loved ones, there's a problem, a big problem. In our nation and around the world, there is an increasing number of unhealthy churches. Increasing at dramatic levels. And here's, here's the reality. Unhealthy churches mean unhealthy believers. And unhealthy believers mean unhealthy churches. There's a huge need in our day to get back to what God's heart for the church is. And so increasingly, churches in our nation, around the world, they're more focused on getting the world's heart for the church in the name of relevancy. Let's get the world's heart for what it wants from the church. And they're not interested in getting God's heart for the church what He has designed it to be, what He gave His life to become the head of. 
through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the result of this, there's increasing compromise in the church and in the lives of believers through, we see it in a few ways. Number one, through the preaching of God's word or lack thereof. The watering down of God's word, avoiding the tough topics, giving what itching ears, as Paul describes in Timothy, want to hear, replacing the the authority of God's word with motivational pep talks on Sunday mornings, taking the pulpit out completely in many cases. So we compromise, we see that on the preaching of God's word, but we also see increasing compromise through the forsaking of the church community. Why is it important to even be a part of the church community? Well, let's just go church shopping. I don't like this one and my preferences aren't met here. I'm moving on to the next one. We just have this church buffet that will stay as long as it's what I feel like should be happening and the moment it's not, I'm out of here. There's a forsaking of meeting together. Forsaking of meeting together in small groups. Forsaking of meeting together on Sunday mornings. Forsaking of meeting together for breaking bread together the church community, and not making it a priority. We see increasing compromise by minimizing God's commands for holiness and purity in the life of a believer and in the church. Pursuing righteousness and godliness, being forsaken for the name of legalism. We see increasing compromise as the world's heart creeps into the church in the form of unhealthy leadership that ultimately fears man more than fearing the Lord. But be encouraged. Yeah, we see that's going on. But be encouraged, it doesn't have to be this way. Amen? Doesn't have to be this way here, Hope. Doesn't have to be this way across our nation, Hope. Why? Because God has given us a blueprint for what a healthy church is to be. And what he always promises to bless. And a blueprint that will, of a church that will be rooted and established in him to endure and thrive for his glory. Even in the increasing darkness around us. It will push it back by the power and grace of God. And so here, this book of Titus, let's get a little intro to this book. Let's get some context for why this is so important. This is a letter, a very short letter of three chapters, written by the Apostle Paul between the years 62 to 64 AD to a young pastor named Titus that Paul most likely has led to Christ and whom Paul had ministered with on the island of Crete. Now you say, where's Crete? You'll see a map on the screen here, okay? So it's just southern Greece. You see Italy on your far left and right down here. It's a southern uh, island in Greece. And here's the thing about Crete, of why this is so important. The Cretan culture was known around the world at that time for their immoral lifestyles. Okay, so the promotion of immorality. And so this is the place that Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, he planted this church with this young pastor named Titus. Titus was known as a son in the faith to Paul. Timothy gets all the press for that, but actually Titus was a son in the faith too. All right, and he was very tight with him and intimate with him in ministering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, this church has been planted and now Paul has left and he's left Titus here 
to pastor this church and strengthen this young church. And here's the thing, of mainly new believers. What does that mean? It means they were not firmly grounded in doctrine. They were not firmly grounded in what it meant to be living godly lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is now writing this letter to confront the false teachers called the Judaizers, who this is exactly what happens in an unhealthy church. False teachers are allowed to rise up. And so these false teachers, these Judaizers, they'd risen up and they're promoting the immoral lifestyle of the culture that was leading other believers, these new believers, astray. Like, well, if these are the teachers in the church and they're living that way, well, we can live that way too. And if this is what they're teaching, then we should believe that. And so Paul is writing this letter to encourage and strengthen Titus and the other church leaders. This wasn't just for one church in Crete. This was for the other churches that they had planted on the island. And he's writing to exhort them strongly in sound doctrine and to be passionate for good deeds in living on mission. That's why our title of the message today is Living on Mission. He's exhorting them strongly of what it means to live on mission for Christ corporately as a church and individually for Christ as believers. And he's writing to equip the churches. Here's the, here's, here's the deal. He's writing to equip the churches for effective evangelism through exhortation towards living upright, loving, selfless, and godly lives which were in distinction from the immoral lives of society and false teachers. He says, your greatest evangelism witness is a distinct life in Jesus Christ that is distinct from the culture. And this is what he is exhorting them to. It's not the next program. It's not the next evangelism. It's a distinct life in Jesus Christ. In your workplace, in your families, in your neighborhoods, you are called to stand out because of the one who is in you. This is what he's exhorting them in And so what we see all throughout this book, we're going to see it and hit it hard over the next eight weeks, is there's a real focus on the inseparable link between belief and behavior. What you believe is shown by how you behave. And this is what Paul is getting at here. A genuine confession of Christ should always lead to increasing progression in Christ of godliness. And this is the inseparable link. Their talk must match their walk. We have in our culture today a bit of a crisis where there's so much confession of Christ, but very few actually want to keep progressing in Christ. Why? Why is Paul focusing on this? Because Christians, here's the reality, Christians on the island of Crete right there, they had a very bad reputation because of those claiming to be followers of Christ who were living immoral lifestyles. And so evangelism was significantly hindered because their behavior didn't line up with what they said they believed. And so if I could sum all this up, here's Paul, plants this church, looks at Titus, and he leaves him a very demanding ministry. And the church was in desperate need of being rooted and established in the truth of the faith, or it was going to crumble. It would be divided, it would be broken, and ultimately not fulfill what God had called it to do. And loved ones, 
Look around. The same is true for us today. There's no different here. And so that's why you'll notice the tone of this message. It's only three chapters, but it is jam-packed. There's an urgency in what Paul is writing here. And so Paul's not using any fluff language here. It's very direct. (laughs) And in his tone, and it's written with much urgency, and it's direct in exhorting the church to godliness and to live on mission for God individually and corporately. And so here in our text, we're going to look at where it all starts, where God's heart for the church all starts. And we're going to see two foundational truths that we must embrace as individual believers and corporately as a church if we are to grow as healthy believers and a healthy church who live on mission for Jesus Christ and see the gospel advance in and through us for the glory of God. Here, we're going right back to where it all starts. Ready to go? I'm excited for this. You guys ready? Ready? Here we go. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. And we're going to read Titus chapter 1, starting at 1 and going to verse 3. Greeting. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Hear the word of the Lord, loved ones. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, the first truth that we see here is that to live on mission for Christ I must live from my identity in Christ. I am his servant. To live on mission for Christ, I must live from my identity in Christ. I am his servant. And the question we are confronted with in this first verse is this. Servanthood is my identity in Christ. Am I willingly serving him in all things? Am I willingly, circle willingly on your sermon notes, serving him in all things? Let's read the start of verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, in the first three verses of this greeting, don't ever skip over the greetings, by the way. When you hear the Bible, you're like, let's get to the good stuff. Hey, you'll see in a moment, this greeting's jam-packed. All right? Don't skip over the greetings. In the first three verses of this greeting, Paul outlines the mission that Christ has entrusted to him to preach the gospel. And newsflash, loved ones, it's the same mission you and I are given today. If we are a follower of Jesus Christ, that is our mission. But before, notice this, before going into what Paul was called to do, what does he focus on? He first ensures that he defines who he was called to be. Let me say that again. Before Paul jumps in to just going into what Christ had called him to do, he steps back and focuses on first who he was called to be. And in a culture of do, 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 this identity piece is absolutely essential if we were going to be faithful in this mission. And Paul gets that here. And who is he called to be? He says there, right there, Paul, a servant of God. A servant of God. The word servant there, you'll see it on the screen. The Greek word is doulos. It means slave 
one without any ownership rights of their own. This is one of the greatest apostles who ever lived. How's he describing himself? I'm a servant, I'm a slave. No ownership rights over my life anymore. My life is in Christ's hands, he's my king. What he says goes. I'm not in the driver's seat anymore. I'm his servant, all hail the king. And here's the thing about why this is so significant. This description of a slave was the most menial, bottom-rung position in the first century you could ever have. Bottom of the barrel. Because the first century servant, he didn't act, he didn't do anything on his own authority. Nothing. But he was submitted to his master's authority. And was completely dependent. Doesn't God love our dependence? Was completely dependent on the master for all things. So Paul's saying here, I'm not just a servant of anyone. Look at me. He says, I'm a servant of God. Who is God? The Greek word there for God is theos. It means creator, owner, and sustainer of all things. The ruler over all. See, Paul is, look at, the, look at the declaration of humility Paul's making here. Paul is humbly and rightly describing himself as a servant of God and indicates by that title his complete willingness to serve the Lord in all things. It wasn't like, well, I'll serve you over here, God, and then we're on good, we're good, but I'm not going to serve you with this. I'm still going to do what I want to do and walk in my sin. I'm going to do over here. I'm just going to spend my money how I want to spend it. I'm going to buy the things I want to buy. I'm going to raise my kids the way I want to raise them. But I'll give you my church time on Sunday. He says, completely surrendered as a servant, willing in all things. Nothing he does was under his own authority anymore. Why? Because he knew What every true follower of Christ must understand in it is this. When he repented of his sin and surrendered to Jesus Christ, his king, as Lord and Savior, he was no longer his own. He had been bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You're not calling the shots. The old Paul was adamant to do his own thing and live his own way, to satisfy his own desires and to serve himself. But that Paul, hey loved ones, that Paul had died. And the new Paul, with a new nature, a new mission, a new purpose, and a new person came to life. He came to life in Christ and his servanthood to Christ was now his identity. He was no longer serving himself. How's that for radical departure from our world today? That's a 180. Do what you need to do to get ahead. Serve yourself before others. Just, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. 
And so now notice this here. He states he's a servant first, and then look what he goes on to in the next part of the verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he moves into apostles. See, Paul tells us how he was specifically called to serve Christ. And he was called as an apostle. What does apostle mean? You'll see the Greek word for apostle. It just simply means sent one or messenger. Okay, A messenger who was sent or commissioned by the king, Jesus Christ, to preach God's word with the authority of God. So the picture of this, I want you to picture this, a messenger of the king. So in ancient times when a royal would send a messenger to another king in another kingdom, that messenger would go and say exactly what that royal, what that king wanted said to everybody else. But he didn't just say what the king wanted, he went with the authority authority of the king. Okay? So this is what it means to be an apostle here. And so why why is Paul saying this? Here's why Paul's saying this right out of the gate at the start of the letter, because he's ensuring that Titus and the church at large, these false teachers especially, know that what is about to follow in this letter is not coming from Paul's own preferences for what he wants the church to be. It's coming from the authority of God for what God wants his church to be and how to function. How often do we let man's preferences trump God's principles in his church? Love you. So, but we also need some clarity here because we hear that word apostle thrown around a lot. So we want to be as clear as possible with God's word. So let's get that. In the context Paul is speaking here, the apostle refers to uh, 12 disciples and Paul who were eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were specifically chosen by him to lead the early church. But now is the general principle when we look at this idea of a messenger. There's no longer apostles, but everyone who's a follower of Christ is called and commanded to be a witness or a messenger for Christ. Clear distinction there. We are called to declare the message of the king. And so think about this. Let's break this down a bit. Paul clearly knew who and what he was in Christ. His identity was that of a servant messenger. And that's our identity today if we are in Christ, whether we realize it or not. His authority was not his own. He was called to humility, not pride. Service and not to be served. He knew he was saved by Christ to serve for Christ and not just to end up in heaven. How many people make a confession of Jesus Christ? We'll never know the number of this, but just to get my get out of hell free card. He was saved by Christ to serve for Christ. Not just to get up in heaven. And he was willing to serve Christ in all things because the glory at stake in each situation that he faced was not his own, but it's God's. It was God's glory that was always on the line. And it's the same for us today. And so look around today. Just look today, loved ones. Is servanthood the identity the world promotes and encourages. Just be honest. Look around. Is servanthood the identity that the world promotes and encourages? Or is it more about you being served? You being served in your family. How much 
conflict in our marriages is a result of me expecting to be served instead of me laying my life down for my spouse. How much conflict in our families is a result of that? Kids refusing to serve the Lord and their parents, parents refusing to serve their kids and wanting unrealistic expectations on them that God has never commanded. How much conflict in the church? Serve me in the church, the consumeristic mentality that is creeping into the church. I'll go to the church as long as it serves me, but the moment I'm asked to serve, I'm out of here. Really? Really? Is that the way it was intended? See, and how many things, with that, loved ones, look at, look at what we face. And how many things are presented to us each day that we're tempted to put our identity in to move us away from our true identity in Christ as his servant? Here, let's go to a couple things. How about base your identity in your relational status? I'm going to base my identity in getting married so I can be a husband or wife. That'll be my identity. I'm going to base my identity in having children. So then my identity will be a mom. Your identity will never be a mom. Even if you're married, your identity will never be a spouse. I'm going to base my identity on my money, how much money I have, how much success I have. I'm going to base my identity on my success in my job. Or even look at this. You watch the Stanley Cup playoffs right now. You watch the Raptors. Watch the Raptors game tonight. You'll see this totally, right? I base my identity on a sports team. You should see what happened when the Leafs lost. It was like mutiny. Like, why are y'all wrapped up in that so much? Because you're putting your identity in that. I'm going to commit to putting so much of the resources God has entrusted me into this and painting my face. Good, I love cheering for sports team. Is your identity in that? Why are you freaking out? I'm going to have success on the sports field. I'm going to have success in the classroom. And that's my identity if I have good enough grades. I'm going to base my identity on have people serve me. So I feel important. That's pride, loved ones. It's an identity we're never meant to have. And it's a false one. See, the truth is this. Each time we look to other things for our identity, our willingness to serve and live out our true identity in Christ decreases. Every time we look to those other things for our identity, our willingness to serve Christ decreases and we become more ineffective in our service to him and living on mission. Why? Because, here's why, here's why. Satan is so cunning. How he pushes us in our face every day. Here's why this happens, that our willingness to serve decreases because everything else we try to base our identity on, here's the reality. If it's not in Jesus Christ, it can be taken away from you. Everything. Your spouse can die. You may never have kids. You may never, the Leafs may never win the cup. You may never make enough money. You may never hit the highest point on the rung of success. It can be taken away. And here's what happens as a result of that. If we start to put our identity of who I am into those things that can't carry it, we're going to try to protect it. So what do I mean by that? We're going to try to protect our reputation if that's my identity is in what you think of me. So I'm going to try to protect my reputation and the fear of man is going to inhibit my witness of sharing the gospel with you. 
because I care more about my reputation with you than my identity in Christ. That's what's driving me right now. The fear of man. I'm not going to step into this opportunity that God has given to me to share the gospel or to step into what he's called me to do because I'm a, I have a fear of failure because my identity is in my pride. So I will not serve. I will not serve my king. We try to protect it. And we try to, and notice what happens when we try to protect it. Stress, anxiety. We work so hard to control our lives and it's like, oh, I gotta work even harder because what if that needs not met? And what if this isn't met? And then we get anxious and we get stressed and there's conflict because we're putting our dependency in something that can't carry it. We're putting our identity in something that can't carry it. We're not taking service opportunities and our willingness to serve Christ is decreasing the more it's about us and our identity and other things. You see, loved ones, and this is why the church is to be distinct from the world. Because our identity, hey, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ here, your identity is secure. It can't ever be taken away from you. Your identity, if you are in Christ, is eternal. You are who he says you are. And he says we are servants of the king as children of God. To be a child of God is to be a servant of God. He can't be taken away because he has all authority. Look at, look at, look at Jesus himself gave us this identity. Mark 10, 42 to 45, it says this. And Jesus called to them, he calls his disciples to them, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They flaunt their authority. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But, here it is. Here's the imperative. It shall not be so with you. Any of my followers, that shall not be with you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Notice the word must there. There's not an option. Must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a, there's that word again, slave, doulos. Slave of all. For even the Son of Man, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many others. If that's our King, that needs to be us. So, question Are you living, loved ones? Be honest with ourselves. Ask yourselves this question. Are you living with servanthood as your identity and serving Christ willingly? Not with grumbling, not with complaining, not with when I get it on my terms, when people do what I want. Are you serving Christ willingly in each area he has entrusted to you? See, because here's what we have to understand. For every true follower of Christ in this room and the millions around the world, um, servanthood is an identity, not a strategy. It's not, well, I guess I'll turn on my service today so I can put in my time at church and then bail. Listen, servanthood is your identity. It's not a strategy when you pick it up and feel like it. It's who we are because it's who Christ was. See, Christ was a servant, and in him, you and I are a servant to our kids, to our wives, to our classmates, to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our brothers and sisters in Christ here in the church. 
to our little kids right down the hall. It's who we are because it's who Christ was. And so what is your next step? Here's what I would say. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord this question because he wants you to ask him. How can I serve? How can I serve the kids? How can I serve my wife? How can I serve this church? How can I serve my family? How can I serve my coworkers? How can I serve my neighbors? You watch and then watch the opportunities he opens up that are right in front of you. Because it's no longer about you. See, this is where living a life on mission starts. Living from our identity in Christ as his servant and not living for ourselves. And from this, our last point today is this. From this, we are then able to live out our mandate from Christ, which is to do this. Ready? This is it. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And the question we're confronted with on this last point is this. I have been entrusted with the gospel. Am I sharing it with others? I have been entrusted with the gospel. Am I sharing it with others? Look at verses 1b to 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now he goes into the mission. The what? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior." You see, Paul outlines his command or mandate that he has been given by Christ for why he is to serve as Christ's messengers. So he stated the what. This is what I am. This is who I am. And now he moves into this is why God has called me to this. And here's why. For the faith of others. Notice this. Nothing about self. For the faith of others. For the sake of God's elect. Of course it is because we're servants. Of course it's for others. We're not saved to keep it to ourselves. We're not saved. We're called to be servants. And the means, notice the means of fulfilling the mission God has given to him is to preach the gospel, to preach God's word faithfully to others. The preaching, that's a present term. It's a present verb. It means it's ongoing. The preaching of the gospel. The word preaching here in the Greek means this. Kerugma. Kerugma. Next slide, boys. Kerugma. And it means to proclaim or herald. To proclaim or herald the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And how, as the Son of God with the Father from eternity past, he humbled himself to the Father's will, became fully God and fully man, and came to earth, lived a perfect sinless life for 33 years, went to the cross to die, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine that we deserve. That is why we are bought with a price. Because Jesus paid our ransom on on the cross. And then he went into the tomb and three days later, he rose again from the dead and now is exalted and seated at the right hand of God. Amen. That is the greatest news of all time. That's what we are commanded to preach. That is what we're commanded to declare. That is our mandate. And the same, notice the word Paul used here in verse three. 
And at the proper time, manifesting his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted. He uses the word entrustment. Spirit inspired him to use that word specifically. It's not a light thing. It's a sacred entrustment. The message of the gospel is an entrustment. And it's the same entrustment that it was for Paul. It's the same entrustment for all every true follower of Christ here. It's not a light thing. In fact, the word entrustment there in verse 3 The Greek means to put one's trust in something. Does this just make you quiver a little bit? That God is putting his trust in us, someone to be faithful with what he's given to us in his word. Does that make you shake a little bit? Sure does for me. Sure does for our elder board, I'll tell you that. He's entrusted his sacred word for faithful proclamation. And in our case, God is entrusting his word to us to be preached faithfully in our church, to be be preached faithfully in your marriages and in your homes, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your schools. Because here's what we have to understand, loved ones. Here's what we have to understand. Gospel ministry, okay, is not just some gig. I'll pick it up when I feel like it. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll dabble in it, a little hobby maybe. Gospel ministry that we're called to is not some gig. It's not some occupation. It's not just something you can do when you feel like it. It's a mandate from our king. It's commanded. It's not a gig. It's not not just that we have the option of doing it when it's easy and when it's comfortable and when it makes our life better when we can win approval. It's not a gig, it's a sacred entrustment. I feel that way every week. Every Every week. And I pray we would too, as every follower of Christ should. It's a sacred entrustment from our king. It's the will of God. And what God has called us to, here's the thing, he expects us to do it in his power. And he's given us what we need to do it. The Holy Spirit. He expects obedience. He expects obedience from us as elders, from me as your senior pastor. He expects obedience from the leaders of this church. He expects obedience from the followers of Jesus Christ in this room. See, preaching the gospel is never an option for the true follower of Christ. Because we're servants of the king. We're messengers. And you say, why is this so important? How is this command? Look at Romans 10, 14 and 17. Some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. How then will they call on him? That is Jesus Christ, putting their faith in him. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone, here it is again, kerugma, preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the gospel. That's a sobering truth right there. How will they hear unless someone preaches? How will they come to faith? 
See, think about what this means, that screen. You'll see this on the screen. Commendator Danny Aiken said it this way, and it floored me this week in prep. Amazingly, look at what this means. Amazingly, God has placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of people like you and me. What? He's placed his eternal plan of salvation in the hands of you and me. I'm not feeling qualified right now, are you? That's why we need a savior, amen? We as heralds of the gospel are recipients of a divine trust, a sacred treasure. And the message we preach, it's not our words. It's not some human wisdom. It's not our word. It is his word. This is our commitment. This is his commandment. This is our calling individually as a church, in our families. This is our calling. We preach his word and not another word. We preach the gospel and not another gospel, not a false gospel. Certainly, some may preach the gospel better. If you're like me, you're like, man, that guy, she preaches so much better than I do. She can share the faith so much. You ever just see people gifted to do this, right? Some people may preach it better, but be encouraged. No one will preach a better gospel. Yes. No one will preach a better gospel. This is the greatest news there is. Just think about that. That God has entrusted his plan of salvation in our hands by his power. See, today... This mandate, loved ones, is not just for pastors. Well, that's the pastor's job. Really, really? you sure? He's writing this to the entire church. That's the pastor's job. It's, It's the mandate, the command of God for every Christian. And listen, your pulpit might not be up here on Sunday mornings. But your pulpit may be your dining room table. Your pulpit may be your dorm room. Your pulpit may be your kid's bedroom. Your pulpit may be the grocery store you're going to go to after this. Your pulpit may be your workplace. Your pulpit may be cutting your grass and taking the initiative to talk to your neighbor when you see them. Your pulpit may be the park that you take your kids to or hang out with your friends. Your pulpit may be that restaurant that you go to this afternoon. Let's get some clarity. You say, well, I don't know about preaching. That's like freaky, man. I can't get up in front of... Hey, listen, let's get some clarity. This doesn't mean... Heralding the gospel doesn't mean you have to like jump up on the table and be like, hey, want to tell you something? Chill. Heralding the gospel is just... <laughs> love that. You're not called to make a scene. <laughs> But you are called to be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give an answer for the hope you profess and let God do the rest. Just let him do the rest. See, God commands us to love him with all our hearts and love others as we love ourselves. And here's the truth. You'll see it on the screen. Sharing the gospel is the greatest act of loving service you could give to another person. That's the truth. It is the greatest act of loving service. Why? Here's why. Because you're giving them a shot at being forgiven of their sin and having eternity with God. 
the very thing their heart is longing for. There is no greater calling, church. There is no greater mission. There is no greater mission in your home. There's no greater mission in your workplace. There's no greater mission in this church, in the ministries that we have here. So why do we preach? Let's break it down real quick. We preach for the sake of others, salvation. Faith produced from the truth. Just look at 1B. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here it is, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Salvation. See, as God's living and active word goes forth from us by the power of the Holy Spirit, here's what it does. Here's what it does. You think this is just a book? You think this awakens and produces faith in God's elect. You say, well, who's God's elect? Those chosen by God before the foundation of the world to receive the gospel. And who's choice to respond to it in repentance and faith. They choose to respond to it as they hear it in repentance of faith as they are prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. As he opens their eyes, he gives clarity to their minds and their hearts to receive it. You say, well, wait a second. If God's already chosen, he's going to be saved. Wait a second. Why, why bother evangelizing? What's the point? Great question. Glad you asked. Or I asked. See, here's what we have to understand. Salvation is completely a work of God from beginning to end. No question. It's completely a work of God from beginning to end, including one's response to the gospel. But the person must still have an opportunity to respond. Romans 10, 17. How will they hear without someone preaching? See, election, the doctrine of election does not inhibit evangelism. It encourages it. Because as we sow the seeds of the gospel through the Holy Spirit, there will be people who respond. Whether in that moment that we share it, or maybe later on with other people. It's been amazing. I was, I was counseling with a family the other day, and, and the father was like, we did, they, their son had come to Christ, and it's like amazing. He goes, we had done family devotions for 20 years, and we brought him to church for like 20 years, and, and nothing, just walking away. He goes to one youth conference, hears the gospel, and bang, his life has radically changed. He goes, did I waste my time? I'm like, no, you were sowing. The living and active word was working on your son's heart. Who cares who gets the credit? When you're walking and living your identity as a servant, you don't care who gets the credit. See, we must understand this. Our mission, you'll see it on the screen, is not to save, it is to sow. We, you and I can't save anybody. Our mission is to sow the seeds of the gospel and herald it in every single opportunity. That is the command of our king. So the question we're confronted with is, are you sowing? Who has God put around you in your church? Are you taking the time to sow the gospel with your brothers and sisters here in the church by stepping up to serve and pray for? Are, who has God put around you in your workplace? Who has God put around you in your home? Are you sowing? Hmm. We preach for the sake of others' salvation. Here's what also we see here. We preach for others' sanctification, increasing knowledge of the truth. Keep reading one. This is all one sentence, by the way, Paul's writing. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and here it is, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. 
So sanctification, we preach for others sanctification, they're increasing knowledge of the truth. As the gospel is preached and people are saved, they continue to grow. They continue to grow in their knowledge of the truth of God through reading God's word and being exhorted in it through the preaching of it and through discipleship with other believers. This is why small groups, loved ones, are so important. Get in a small group. Put your name in for a small group. It's so important to do life on life together. We need to be exhorted and continually have the gospel preached to us every day from our brothers and sisters in Christ as we preach it to them. And as we continue to obey the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, we grow in godliness. We grow in holiness. We grow in distinction from the world around us as we are molded and shaped increasingly into the image of Christ himself. Because here's why. The true gospel produces true godliness. That's what it does. It's living and active. The true gospel produces true godliness. And here's what the gospel does. It always moves us more towards Christ's likeness. It will never take us away from it. And we see way more confession. It breaks my heart. We just see way more confession. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but we don't see much progression. Don't ask me to be a servant of Christ. I'm still serving myself. So question, are you pursuing an increasing knowledge of the truth and growing in godliness and obedience to God's word. Not perfectly. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for perseverance increasingly by the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we growing in distinction of godliness and holiness in our lives? And you say, well, how do I know? Ask your small group. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Whatever. Just ask the Lord, where do I need to grow? So we preach for the other, sake of others' salvation, for their sanctification, and now, finally, we see this beautiful. We preach for the sake of others' eternal life, guaranteed hope in the truth. Look at verse 2. <clears throat> in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. See, Paul states that it is on the basis of the guaranteed hope of eternal life that we have in Christ that we can continue to live out this mission faithfully and exhort others in it through the word. And here's the beautiful thing. We never have to lose hope. It's a guaranteed hope. No matter what may come against us, no matter what oppositions we face, our security in Christ sets us free, loved ones. It's for freedom, Galatians 5.1, that Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Our security in Christ sets us free to serve him with complete freedom because we know that our hope is unshakable because Christ is victorious and our inheritance is guaranteed. No matter what gets taken away from us in this life, it ain't gonna matter one day. It's guaranteed. Preach, preach, and keep preaching. I don't know about you. I just, I was on my prayer walk last night and I saw all the street lights lit up and I just had this picture flash like, what will our homecoming be like? When we see Jesus, I don't know about you, church, but I just want to say I gave it my all. Do you? Do you see his arms outstretched? Here's your hope. It's living. 
You don't have to fear. Go into your classroom tomorrow. Go into your workplace tomorrow. Your homecoming's on its way. Don't be afraid. See, because here's the beautiful thing. Hope here is not just wishful thinking. Like, gee, I hope the Raptors win this afternoon. Or, gee, I hope I get that job. Or, gee, this isn't the hope he's talking about. The word hope you'll see on the screen means joyful and confident expectation of what is certain. There's the hope. That's why faith is the assurance of things hoped for. See, true hope, hope in the gospel has no guesswork. There is no guesswork. It's the confidence that something isn't fully ours yet, but it will be soon. Why? Verse 2, because God never lies. God has said it. It's going to happen. Psalm 1830, every word of God proves true. See, This promise and guarantee gives motivation and patient endurance to all believers to live on mission for Christ to the end in living from our identity in him and living out our mandate from him to preach the gospel without fear, knowing this hope as we close out. No matter what happens in this life, there is a time coming very soon, very soon when all will be made right and we will see our king. We will see Jesus Christ face to face and that promise of hope will be realized in full. So last question, are you as an individual or we as our church living out our mandate to preach the gospel in light of this hope that is ours. No matter the cost, that others may come to know this hope too. It's what every heart is longing for and what this church is called to bring them. Jesus, only Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, your word is a sacred entrustment. And I pray right now we would be stirred up to great faith, not in ourselves, not in our eloquent speech abilities, not in our practices and principles, but God, we would be stirred up to great faith in Jesus Christ, knowing we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit all that we need for life and godliness. And you have promised that when we are in any situation we will be facing, you will give us the words to speak exactly what you want said, how you want it said. Would you please give us the faith? Would faith be rising up in this moment right now to do that. When we go home, may we preach. When we go to work, may we preach. May we stand up here and pray for each other. May we preach. May you show us right now where we're not serving in those areas that we're not willingly stepping into, whether in this church or in our other areas of our lives. God, help us. This is our mandate. You are our king. Find us faithful. In the awesome name of Christ, we pray. Amen.